Welcome to this episode of Out of the Best Books, the podcast where we deep dive into classic literature and have conversations about what we've learned and discovered along the way. We love all things books and reading, and we want to share our love of the classics with you. We hope to inspire you to read along with us and join in the conversation. I'm Laura. And I'm Amity. Let's get started. All right. Today we are finishing up Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, or at least we'll be covering the last several chapters. And just as a quick recap, where we ended before, Frankenstein's monster that he's, he has created has come to him and has said, you need to create a companion for me. He's like, you created me and then you kind of just ditched me and I'm miserable and I want love. I want companionship and no one wants anything to do with me because I'm hideous. It's not really my fault. You know, he's like, so listen, you make a female for me and then we'll disappear and you'll never see us again. And so Frankenstein, he's like kind of horrified at the, at the prospect of this, but he's like, all right, he's convinced to do it. But he feels like he needs to go to England to do it because he doesn't want to create this thing in the same area and household with his loved ones, with his family, with Elizabeth, who he's planning to marry. And so he kind of contrives a reason to go to England. And he's like, I don't know how long I'm going to be there. Might be a few months, might be a year. And Henry Clerval, his friend, goes with him. And so it just talks about that journey. And at the end of the section, they have arrived in London. So that takes us to chapter 19. 19. Yes. It's so interesting. This is just, this book has surprised me because I guess I didn't have any clue what the story was about. And so I was asking my husband the other day, like, what did, you know, did you really know this and this and this about the story? And he's like, no. Yeah, sure. Well, and it was actually, it was really fun because um, Ken, and you know, he's got like a 40 minute commute each way, each day. And so he's been listening to the book so that he could stay with up with us. And he's like, I just finished it today. And he's like, holy moly. Like, I think he had read it before, but it was like high school or something. And so he's like, it's crazy. This is just so fascinating. And so we had a long conversation about all the things you can pull from it and all the things you can learn. So Yeah. And my mother-in-law said that she's reading it too. She was listening to it yesterday. So she's like, she wanted to know what. She's like, there was those letters and then nothing. I explained to her what the letters were, like how it set it up. And then how I was like, he'll come back at the end. So yes. And it does. It also it wraps up really well. Oh, so good. So um, I have chapter 19 and 20. Chapter 19 is much quicker than chapter 20. In 18, they talked about how Clairvaux was going to go with him. Yeah. So they're getting ready to go on their journey. They're in, you said they're in London. They're going to go on a long journey to Switzerland where they had been invited to stay with a friend. I thought this was kind of interesting. And what a different life to like, okay, they they decide they're going to go to a new place. And they say, okay, at the end of the month, we'll leave. And then we're going to take six months to get to the next place we're going to. <laughs> we're going to stay there for a while. And I don't know. It just seems like. Exactly the of- thought that I had. Yeah. Yes, kind of like Pride and Prejudice, where they would go. I mean, if they came to visit, they stayed for weeks. Yeah. Totally different lifestyle than we live. But so they had several stops through England, but they end up spending a long time at Oxford. And as they're getting closer and closer to Scotland, Victor is often feeling like the monster is following him. Like he just feels like he's right there behind him the whole time. After a week in Edinburgh, Victor tells Clerval to go enjoy himself because he needs to be alone for a while. So I think he wants to be alone to do his work. <laughs> Isn't 
needs somebody looking over him. And also Victor wants to spend a remote spot in Scotland to finish his work alone. He finds an island where there are only three miserable huts and he rents one that has only two rooms. And this is where he begins his work of creating the the female companion for the monster. And he he kind of reflects back to when like he was excited the first time when he was creating the first monster. He was it was exciting and this time he's kind of repulsed by what he needs to do and worried about it. And he said I like this too. It said the work he has to do is gross. It is filth. I think they use the word filthy. So yeah. also I believe this section of the book it took a turn, if that makes sense. It to me it was grosser. It was more um, descriptive in like the morbid stuff. Yeah. I don't know. Did yeah. you see a difference? Yes, for sure. And I, well, in a lot of ways, both in that and also in like diving into his, just how miserable he was. I think it really goes on for a long time about how incredibly miserable he is. That's something that I certainly noticed. You feel bad for him. And then often he wanted to totally avoid human contact. And sometimes he couldn't even go into his lab for days and days because it was just up too upsetting. And then other times he would work day and night to finish what he was doing. I just, you kind of like picture this mad scientist in his, in his lab, like, I don't know, working like crazy sometimes yeah, yeah. and then being too tired or too sick or, you know, just not wanting to be in there. And so while he's working on his new creation, he kind of reflects back on how it's been three years since he had done the first one. And he remembers that after months of hope that he had ended up creating a fiend whose unparalleled barbarity had desolated my heart and filled it forever with the bitterest remorse. So he's like, I was excited. And then, oh, yeah, like this did not turn out well. And now he realizes that he's about to create something similar. And that she could be even more murderous and wretched than the original monster. And I kind of thought this was funny, too, because he's creating a female. And he kind of mentions, like, females worry about looks. <laughs> they want to be beautiful. And if this female is ugly, she might be hate me even more and be even worse than the first one. Yeah, he's realized he has no control after the thing is done and out there. He has no control whatsoever. And so he's assuming, I mean, uh, the monster is assuming that the females is going to be at the same mind as him and be like, oh, yeah, let's disappear into the mountains. And Frankenstein is going, that might not be the case at all. <laughs> I have no way of knowing. And yeah, like you said, even though the male had promised him that if he created a companion, they would leave. He's like, what if the female doesn't want to go along with that? Mm -hmm. like I said, what if she's so mad about her deformity? But she's even worse than him. And then the last thing I think what gets him is what if they procreate? What if they produce this, what they call a race, a race of these monsters, and then they like yeah. overtake everything. And I think that's his clincher. That's like, yeah. I can't do this. I think this is what does him in. So one night while he's thinking about this, he looks up and he sees the monster looking at him through, I thought this was interesting. And you probably already knew this, but through a casement. And that is a window that opens up like a door. Did you know that? You probably no, that. I did not. <laughs> but cool. I thought that was kind of interesting. It reminded me of like Beauty and the Beast, where she's singing in the town, 
and like the windows open. Oh, like, and the windows just open. Like, yes. yeah. <laughs> That's, yeah. What it reminded me of. That's probably exactly what it is. The, ma- the monster was looking at him through a casement in the hut. And he says he had followed me in my travels. He had loitered in forests, hid him in caves and taken refuge in wide deserted heaths. And he now came to mark my progress and claim fulfillment of my promise. So when he sees the monster, he realizes that he just can't. He can't go through with it. And so he tears the female to pieces. Everything he'd worked on, he just rips it to shreds. So that's another like, uh, like ugh. gory picture in my mind. Mm. And then out, so the monster sees this and outside he hears the monster let out this, it says a howl of devilish despair. And the monster disappears into the night at that point. So several hours later, Victor hears the opening of a door. See, I just think this is so much creepier than it had been. Yeah. Opening Yes, like, anyways, here's the opening of a door and the monster is standing there in the doorway. And he asks Victor, like, how could you have destroyed all of my hopes? He probably thought you were so close. What were you doing? Like, this is this is all I want. And Victor says, never will I create another like you equal in deformity and wickedness. Because Victor says he's not going to create a companion for him, the monster yells, you are my creator, but I am your master. Obey. And he also says, remember, I shall be with you on your wedding night. Can you even imagine? No. Terrifying. (laughs) I don't know. This might give me nightmares. I don't know. Victor then tries to, he tries to attack the monster, but the monster is, eludes him. Like he can just get away. I mean, he's has like superhuman powers, right? And so Victor's just left alone that night. He's remembering the monster's threat about his wedding night and he's unable to sleep. So he goes back to his laboratory and he collects the remaining parts of his of the creature that he had kind of half finished. And he disposes of them by taking them out to sea in a little boat. I thought this too, before I even said it, like as he's throwing the pieces of this creature out into the sea, he feels like he's committing a crime. I mean. Well, yeah. He felt like he needed to clean it up because he thought if somebody came in there, they would think he had committed a crime. So that tells you that there it was body parts you know i mean it's a person gross <laughs> right I'm like seriously it's Very like disturbing turned <laughs> i had that thought too i'm like oh this scene of him throwing body parts into the sea like mm. he should feel ugh. and he gets really confused while he's out at, at sea like he's so exhausted he falls asleep when he wakes up he's not sure what happened to the shore he'd like drifted out um the wind had drif- driven him far from the shore and he's just scared to death So after a few hours, he's finally able to get back to shore where there's a group of people waiting for him. Of course. I thought this was funny, too, that they spoke English, but they were very rude. And he kind of says, well, why are you so rude? Why are you talking to me like this? And then he finds out that he's in Ireland and the people want to know where he's come from because they had found a man murdered the night before. And Victor needs to account for his whereabouts. Like, where have you been? And people this will come up i think in your chapters they'd seen him mm-hmm. creepy <laughs> so there's a couple of thoughts that i had and i hope they make sense because again i'm always trying to go okay what what is she exploring with this because a lot of times when you hear authors talk about their books and unfortunately we can't like actually hear her voice talk about it but they'll be like they start writing and it's almost like the characters take them on a journey but they're also trying to get an idea across in their books as well. So I may be way off, but here's a couple of thoughts that I had. So first of all, 
as you pointed out, he said, it's, it was a filthy process. So this is back in chapter 19. He says, during my first experiment, a kind of enthusiastic frenzy had blinded me to the horror of my employment. My mind was intently fixed on the consummation of my labor and my eyes shut to the horror of my proceedings. But now I went to it in cold blood and my heart often sickened at the work of my hands. He says, I was employed in the most detestable occupation. It's just miserable to him. And I thought... Maybe one version of hell in the scriptures, it talks about how hell is, it's actually just like, it's called endless. It's this endless torment. And it makes me wonder if like, maybe one version of hell is like committing the same sin over and over and over again. And knowing like how it makes you feel and all the ramifications, because it doesn't make you feel good. But if you're committing that sin over and over and like having to continually feel those awful feelings that you get when you commit them, that would be hell. And so he is living sort of his own hell because he's like forced into doing this thing again that he knows there's some awful things that are going to come from it. And what might be even scarier are all the things that he doesn't know. I was thinking that like, as you were talking, I'm like, okay, hell could be, I mean, any kind of addiction, right? Like, like for me, my personal hell is not being able to control my sugar intake, right? And so it's like, you're just constantly screwing up and you're like, you want to do something different, but you can't. And so, or you can't seem to make yourself yeah. do better. I mean, that could be a personal hell. Yeah. And it's like this thing that's just tormenting you all the time. Yeah, just never being able to get out of this hole, never be able to be any better. Yeah. With sugar. Yeah. I mean, I hate to say that that's my addiction because it's not life-threatening or, you know what I mean? But, but it is a struggle for sure. And, yeah. and a lot of people consider it an addiction. And I think that like, I mean, you're certainly not alone. I think the majority of the world is addicted. It's tough. But like, think about yeah. that. So you've got this thing that's like running your life and this monster is running his life. Yes. And that, that was my next point is in the next chapter, the monster says to him, you are my creator, but I am your master. Obey. And I just wrote next to that vice addiction, anything like that. We are the ones who initiate it and begin it. We always have that choice, but then often it does become our master. Then a lot of our choices are taken away. And that's why we are counseled so often to be so careful about so many things, whether it's smoking or drugs or alcohol, or even just like your caffeine intake, your sugar intake, pornography, all these things that create this need, this addiction, because we want to be our own masters. We should want to be our own masters. We all want that agency to be able to choose. And those things take away our ability to choose. This monster has taken away his ability to choose and he is being tortured by it yeah you can't get away from it it's like everywhere no. he goes and like i just love the the imagery that he's like right behind him and he says this several times in the last part where like i know he's here we can't see so him there... i know he's right there and he's watching yeah. me and he knows what i'm doing and anyway it's, it's, so it's ever present yeah for sure and then just kind of like right along with that though when he's like no i'm gonna break my promise your threats cannot move me to do an act of wickedness because i can't do this to mankind and so the monster says 
Shall each man find a wife for his bosom and each beast have his mate and I be alone? I had feelings of affection and they were requited by detestation and scorn. Man, you may hate, but beware your arrows will pass in dread and misery. You can blast my other passions, but revenge remains. He's basically trying to guilt him and manipulate him, which is what addiction does too, right? It like, it's like, well, look what I have done for you. I've been there for you in your hard times. And you owe this to me. I thought that was kind of interesting too. He's totally trying to guilt and manipulate him into carrying this out. Like you, I am entitled to this now. You yeah. owe me. Yeah. Right. And I do, I do like too, that he, he finally like puts his foot down. He's like, no, I'm not doing this. Yeah. Like you can do whatever you want to me. Yeah. yeah. And that's what was required that had to happen. So moving on to chapters 21 and 22. So again, he's arrived at this island and all these people are like not welcoming him at all. He is in Ireland and they're accusing him of murder. So he has this brief pre-trial, finds out that three fishermen have been walking along. They tripped over a body and find that it's this man who had been very recently strangled to death. The body is still warm. They had carried to this house of this woman. They're like, uh, the body's so warm. This is terrifying. A few people testify to having seen a man getting in a boat exactly like Frankenstein's and rowing away. Okay. So did they say they could see him exactly? No. Couldn't describe the man, but it was a boat exactly like his. And so the fact that he came back to the exact spot, they're like, well, he probably just didn't realize, you know, they knew he was foreign. He spoke French was his first language, I believe. It must have been. I was trying to figure that out. Was it German or French? It must have been French. I think so. so. Because that's all that the monster spoke. He learned French and they were able to converse. So so they know he's a foreigner, but they're like, well, we think that, you know, the winds were so bad last night. He was probably blown around a lot. And so he didn't realize that he landed in the same place where he just killed somebody. So the magistrate, his name is uh, Kerwin. He orders Frankenstein to be taken into the room where the corpse is. And it is the body of Henry Clerval. And Frankenstein is... It's just, he just about loses his mind. It says he's taken from the room in convulsions. Uh, there's a quote that I wanted to read real quick. He says, have my murderous machinations deprived you also, my dearest Henry of life? Two, I have already destroyed other victims await their destiny, but you, Clerval, my friend, my benefactor, he's just beside himself and he's taken from the room, suffering convulsions. And I think probably a part of him, honestly, is not terribly surprised, but so absolutely mortified. And so for two months, he actually suffers with fevers and he cries out all the time in his native tongue, in, in French, I believe. And, you know, saying all these things that could, I suppose, be incriminating if anybody actually understood it just because he's like, I killed them. I killed them. Even though, of course, he didn't. But but nobody even understands it except for this Kerwin guy. So Frankenstein does finally wake up after a couple months. He's in a prison. There's this elderly lady sitting next to him who's been assigned to like be his nurse. She's pretty cold and awful. He, she's not he's very like, nice. No, she's not. <laughs> she's not. She's like, basically, I'm just here to nurse you back to life. And then, you know, your life is not going to be fun from here on out. He says that he wishes he was dead. He's so miserable. And she's like, yeah, because from here on out, it's going to go hard with you because you're a murderer, you know? He's so completely wretched. He just wants to die. In fact, he's even like, well, maybe I'll just plead guilty because then they will kill me. But Kerwin, the magistrate, he knows he's not guilty. And he actually like treats him as well as he can. But also Frankenstein, 
you know, he is a man of decent honor because he keeps going, death would be the easiest thing for me right now. But I can't do that while this monster is alive because he's just going to keep wreaking havoc on everybody. And I don't know where it's going to stop. And so death for him would be the easy way out. And so he can't do that. And I think that's part of his torture too. So it turns out that Kerwin, the magistrate, had actually gotten a hold of his papers. So he was able to find out exactly who this guy was. And that's why he realized that like he he's not the one who had killed the man. And so he comes to him and he says, nothing indeed could be more unfortunate and agonizing than the strange chances that have lately occurred. You were thrown by some surprising accident on this shore, renowned for its hospitality, seized immediately and charged with murder. The first sight that was presented to your eyes was the body of your friend murdered in so unaccountable a manner and placed, as it were, by some fiend across your path. He's basically like, you actually have like the worst luck I've ever seen. I don't want to be you. It's you have a horrible life. But the one good thing, though, is that he had actually written to Frankenstein's father. And and so his father came to Ireland and saw him. And the next little bit is really it's just a lot of him being very miserable. He says, Alas, why did they preserve so miserable and detested a life? It was surely that I might fill my destiny, which is now drawing to a close. Soon, oh, very soon, will death extinguish these throbbings and relieve me from the mighty weight of anguish that bears me to the dust. And in executing the award of justice, I shall also sink to rest. So he's really like, I'm so miserable. I hate my life. I just want to die. I'm only being preserved so that I can probably, hopefully, like, kill this monster and then I can die. Yeah, just wait, Frankenstein. I don't yeah. know. It's funny. It's There's like, more to come. Uh, yeah. It just gets worse. I mean, and do you ever yeah. feel like life is like that? It just keeps getting worse. I do, actually. <laughs> yes. In fact, I was like out on my run yesterday and I was like, I didn't take anymore. I just don't know. Like, it just seems like when it rains, it pours. There's just like one thing after the next, after the next. And then like sort of to add insult to injury, my sweet sister-in-law who She's been trying to have a baby forever and they did IVF, went through the whole process. The embryos were good. They implanted the embryos and then it did not work. Didn't take. Oh, no. Yes. And it's like just months and months, you know? And so I don't know. It's just like, what are we doing wrong? You're not doing anything wrong, but sometimes life feels life like. Life oh, yeah. Anyways. <laughs> so, and I'm like, she didn't do anything wrong. If we did something wrong. Okay, but like, why? Why is our family just one thing after the other? And not that I'm taking like her hurt on me, but it just sometimes it seems like in a family there will be like just everything. The storm just centers on a family for a while. I know. Yeah. Sometimes you look at a family, you go, "Can they ever catch a break?" Like, <laughs> you know, just one thing after another. And you know, we've had summers where it's like, we had a summer. Oh my gosh, it was. I can't remember. It was like 2007, 2000, something like that, where it was mm-hmm. like my sister lost a baby. My mom broke her hip. David mm-hmm. had to have like a heart. He had to have a pacemaker put in, which for him meant like open heart surgery. Yeah. And like, it was just like, when we were done with that summer, I was like, what the heck just happened to us? Like, yeah. <laughs> what? What ringer did we just get? <laughs> Put through yeah. seriously. Yeah, I know. It's just with him. It's like if he gets bad now, you just wait. Yeah. Now it you're is. accused of murder. Speaking of that, they go to this larger court for him to actually be tried. And he's actually very quickly acquitted because they were able to prove that he was like on this other island on the Orkneys while the murder was happening. So it's all over very quickly. 
And so he and his father, he convinces his father, he's like, no, like we need to get back to Geneva now. And so they get going. They do have to pause in Paris because he is exhausted. And while he's there, his father's like, go out in society, like mingle with people, you know, like that trial is over. Everything's good. Yes. Like your friend is gone and that's so tragic, but like get out and be social, you know? But he won't. He just can't. He says, I abhorred the face of man. Oh, not abhorred. They were my brethren, my fellow beings. And I felt attracted even to the most repulsive among them as to creatures of an angelic nature and celestial mechanism. But I felt that I had no right to share their intercourse. I had unchained an enemy among them whose joy it was to shed their blood and to revel in their groans. And so he's like, this is all my fault. So I can't go be happy. His father doesn't know anything about the monster. He doesn't. So he's super confused about uh, like why he's so melancholy, why he's so yeah. withdrawn, why he's so ill. He's also very confused because Frankenstein keeps saying that he's responsible for the deaths of William, of Justine, of Henry. And Frankenstein wishes with all of his heart that he could tell his father what it's all about, but he just, he can't. He <laughs> receives a letter from Elizabeth and she says, you know, and this has kind of happened before from his father, but now she's saying it. Do you love somebody else? Like, you don't really want to marry me? Look, I just, I want you to be happy. But like, you've traveled, you've gone off. It's kind of like you're avoiding this. And so that's fine. But I just, I need to know because I want you to be happy. And he's like, no, like you're my one and only. Like, of course I want to marry you. But it keeps coming back to his mind. You know, I will be with you on your wedding night. Ah! terrifying he's, like, he's kind of like how can i put this off he's yeah. thinking that but now as he's getting closer he's like well actually if i speed up the process like in his mind he's like the monster's going to come attack me and if i'm ready i can kill him and then i can have some peace and i wanted to read this quote because he's like basically if he were vanquished i should be a free man alas what freedom such as the peasant enjoys when his family have been massacred occurred before his eyes his cottage burnt his lands laid waste and he has turned adrift homeless penniless and alone but free such would be my liberty except that in my elizabeth i possessed a treasure alas balanced by those horrors of remorse and guilt which would pursue me until death so yes he's like i kind of want this final thing to happen get rid of him and then whatever peace that is it wouldn't really be peace but at least he'd be gone and i could spend time with Elizabeth, you know, like I said, Frankenstein reassures Elizabeth of his affection and they meet up when he returns to Geneva. They're both pretty like gaunt and awful looking, but they they do have, they have this depth of love and affection that, you know, nothing really affects that. And so they fix the wedding date. It's like 10 days hence, if you will. And on the night of their wedding, they are planning to travel to Evian in France. They're going to stay there. Everywhere he goes, he carries a lot of weapons with him just in case the monster happens to attack. <laughs> they talk about a lot of things. They're just one thing he says to her is the day after our wedding, I have a huge secret that I'm going to tell you and it'll make a lot of things clear. I mean, can you imagine like the day after our wedding? I'm going to tell you this big secret. <laughs> yeah. Terrifying. <laughs> and she did become quite melancholy as the wedding drew nigh and then as it happened. And he's thinking that that's why. And like, I just can't even imagine being so paranoid about yeah. what's lurking around each corner and like carrying weapons. And this book is just so descriptive. And so like you can get into their thoughts and how they must feel oh, like yeah. 
Oh, so good. Yeah, it pulls you in for sure. I was telling David yesterday when I finished the book and I was like, I don't know that I've ever read a classic this propulsive. Hmm. I mean, that's a good word, right? I mean, I'm I'm using it right. (laughs) I asked him, I was like, does it mean what I think it means? But like pulls you forward. Like you just want to, I wanted to keep reading and I was like, what's going to happen? Like sort of Pride and Prejudice was like that. And that was, it was like that for me. I mean, I guess all of them have been, but I think this the most. That guy's just like, oh my gosh. Yeah. His dad, you know, all the time looking on the out from the outside of a situation, you just can't understand what people are feeling because he just doesn't yeah. have any clue Mm-mm. how Frankenstein feels responsible for all of this. And he's just looking at it from the outside going, I don't get it. Like, why can't you yeah. pull yourself out of this? Yeah. And he no. just thinks that he's kind of delirious, that he has so much grief that he's delirious. And I think... Two, you know, you can understand. I think a lot of times people have survivor's guilt or just for whatever reason, they can't explain why a horrible, tragic thing has happened to their loved ones. And so they feel like for some reason it's their fault. And so his father is probably like, well, that's probably what this is. But he has no clue how deep it goes. Yeah. And I just can't imagine being responsible for, you know, creating something that murdered my family and friends. It's just, I would torture you. Oh, definitely. So in chapter 23, they'd just gotten married and they don't reach their hotel until about eight o'clock that night. Now, a storm comes in and Victor is scared to death. He's scared of everything. I mean, it's our wedding night and he knows the monster's around and is going to do something. Now, I thought this was interesting. I'm sure this is like obvious, but in Gothic novels, often big things happen during thunderstorms. (laughs) So there's a there's a storm something's gonna happen yeah it's a dark and dreary night and it reminded me of rebecca or i don't know totally so elizabeth is getting ready for bed and victor is searching the whole house looking through every corner looking making sure that the monster is not hiding in there it says he's inspecting every corner that might afford a retreat to his adversary and he finds no trace of the monster but then all of a sudden he hears a shrill dreadful scream from elizabeth's room Uh uh-oh this is it and he knows so he rushes in there and of course it's his worst nightmare which you know all the long all along he thinks the monster's gonna hurt him he doesn't Mm -hmm. think he's gonna hurt elizabeth this is another part where i feel like it gets really kind of gory and gross yeah elizabeth is lying there lifeless and inanimate her bloodless arms and relaxed form flung by the murderer on its bridal bier now I, I looked up what a beer is and I thought that, or if that's how you say it, beer, beer, I don't know. It's B-I-E-R. It's a movable frame on which a coffin or corpse is placed before burial or cremation or on which it is carried to the grave. A little ominous. Yes. Yeah. But it's, she's on the bed. So he faints, Victor faints. And when he kind of wakes up again, then all, he's surrounded by all these other people that happened to be in the end that night. That's when he sees Elizabeth's body again. And he realizes that she really is dead. So he rushes to the window and he sees the monster staring at him with a grin on his face. And Victor fires a gun at him. But of course, it doesn't hurt the monster. And he escapes the bullet and he disappears. So the people in the inn are trying to help Victor find the monster, which they never do find him, which they probably are like, are we really looking for something here? Like, yeah. They they did. I mean, they were kind of humoring him. I think. Yeah, um, like a monster. Kind of crazy. Yeah. Yes, and that's the other problem I think Victor has is that he's so alone in that nobody can understand 
nobody will believe him or they'll just think he's crazy. And so like, even if he could tell anybody, it wouldn't be helpful. So he's just totally alone in his misery. So then, of course, Victor becomes ill again and he has to be taken back to the hotel. Now he's worried that the monster is going to go after his father and his brother. He now realizes that monster has taken all of his hopes and happiness. He says, one by one, my friends were snatched away. I was left desolate. Victor's father and brother are alive when he gets back home to Geneva, but they are grieving because of the loss of Elizabeth, which they just, all of them just loved her. The father is like her father. Yeah, and- totally. is, And I think that that really is why both the father and Elizabeth were like, you know, Elizabeth is kind of more like a sister. So it's understandable if you don't want to marry her. Yes. Because there is kind of that more sisterly bond and she was a part of the family, but. Yeah, it was a different time. He did. He did yeah. yeah very <laughs> and then his father ends up dying because the grief is too much. This is too much for Victor to take. And so he goes mad. He goes crazy. And then they kind of put him in a solitary cell for a couple of months. When he gets out of there, then he goes to the magistrate and tells him about the murderer. And at first the magistrate is listening and interested, but doesn't really believe Victor's story. And he even does tell him that, okay, even if your story is true and this monster exists, like I don't have the power to capture it. Like I can't do anything. Yeah. I mean, the monster, what a monster like this quote can traverse the sea of ice and inhabit caves and dens where no man would venture to intrude. But Victor is sure that, again, that the monster is close by. And as he leaves, he tells the magistrate that he will devote the rest of his life to find and destroy the monster that he has created. It's just interesting. You just think about, like, I gotta think about our kids and how we'll say, like, we created a monster. (laughs) Yes. You know? (laughs) I mean, of course, we would never devote our lives to destroying that monster we created. No, but we do also just feel like we created a monster. Yes, but maybe that's kind of how he feels, though. Like, yeah. in our minds, we're like, he created this monster. It's not his child. No. He could kill it, but he might be feeling differently about it. Like, yeah. I created this. How how do I go destroy it? But, I mean, at yeah. this point now, he's like, I have to. Yes, he has gotten to that point. And so in chapter 24, he just, you know, he loves Geneva, but he's like, I can never be here again. And so he leaves and his entire goal is just to track down this fiend and destroy him. But before he goes, he visits the graves of his loved ones and he sort of utters this oath. And I wanted to read it real quick. It says, by the sacred earth on which I kneel, by the shades that wander near me, by the deep and eternal grief that I feel, I swear, and by thee, O night, and the spirits that preside over me to pursue the demon who caused this misery until he or I shall perish in mortal conflict. For this purpose, I will preserve my life to execute this dear revenge. Will I again behold the sun and tread the green herbage of earth, which otherwise should vanish from my eyes forever? And I call on you, spirits of the dead, and on you, wandering ministers of vengeance, to aid and conduct me in my work. Let the cursed and hellish monster drink deep of agony. Let him feel the despair that now torments me. Really, he's just saying, the only reason I'm living is to destroy the monster. At that moment, the the monster is actually there, and he laughs at him, and he's like happy that he's so miserable. And then he takes off. So Frankenstein follows them wherever he goes, and they're always sort of like, gradually getting further and further north. He travels 
many, many miles. Sometimes peasants along the way will be like, oh yeah, this terrifying monster. He went that way because it would like scare them. Sometimes there would be sightings sort of like Bigfoot or something, you know? <laughs> um, and then also along the way, like he would, the the peasants along the way would give him food and shelter and that's how he would survive. Sometimes he would just like lay down on the ground and sleep and, or just hunt animals. And, and then he'd give his leftovers to peasants and he would pay them and things like that. It talks about how really his only sanctuary was sleep because in sleep he would dream and he would dream of his loved ones. And, and there were times that he was like, what is real? Is my reality actually the dreams where my loved ones are there? Or is it this nightmare where I'm chasing this monster? And so I think he did start to go crazy. He did. What got really creepy too was that the monster would leave him notes along the way. So as he's going, it was like, yeah, keep coming. So a couple of things that he said, my reign is not yet over. You live and my power is complete. Follow me. Come on, my enemy. We have yet to wrestle for our lives. And then as he keeps getting further and further north, the snow gets thicker. And so this one final thing he says, prepare, your toils only begin. Wrap yourself in furs and provide food for we shall soon enter upon a journey where your sufferings will satisfy my everlasting hatred. It's like, I'm taking you to a place where basically it's not going to affect me. And it doesn't matter to me that it's super cold, but you're going to be miserable and that's going to make me happy. But actually in this moment, Frankenstein, he is grateful because he's like, I think that the journey is actually finally to an end is going to come to an head to a head and all of this is going to stop. So both Frankenstein and the monster are able to procure dogs and sleds. He keeps getting closer to him. And, and at one point Frankenstein got within one mile of the monster. He could see him, but then this wave comes along because they're in like ice and there's snow and there's ice and there's water. And this wave comes along and it seems like it dashes this ice to pieces. And so he's like separated. He nearly dies and a lot of his dogs die. And that's when the ship with Walton comes along and rescues him. And he makes them promise to kill the monster if they come across it. So that wraps up everything nicely in a little bow. And here's now where we're going to enter into the very last part of the book that is the ending letters there's five letters at the end so there was four letters at the beginning five letters at the end one of them is very very short they're all to his sister just like i think all of them were all of them back yes, and forth all of them are to his sister yeah okay so the first letter is written august 26th and this letter is written a week after the last one at the beginning of the book and he says that even though this seems strange, he really does believe Victor because of the anguish in his voice. And he had seen the letters of Felix and Safi. So there's proof that they existed. And then he had even seen the monster himself, like at the very beginning where he saw the monster before Victor yes. comes onto his ship. And I, I have this very clear image of like what that must have looked like on the ice. <laughs> the monster. I yeah. think, yeah, I bet ours are very similar because yes. I don't know how else you could see it. It's just creepy. Yes. So Walton even tried to find out how Victor had created the monster, mm -hmm. but Victor will not say. He's like tight-lipped. I'm not telling you that. Okay. And at this point, Victor finds out that Walton had written the whole story down. And so he makes sure that he reads it himself and makes any corrections that need to be made. Then Walton kind of talks to his sister about Frankenstein being kind and intelligent and a friend to him. Walton had wanted Frankenstein to kind of move on and live like a positive life. But Victor said that 
just too much had happened to him. And he could never have such a good friend as Clerval. He could never have somebody he loved as much as Elizabeth. And also what the one of the quotes you had just read talked about, like he felt this calling from what he called heaven. Like these mm-hmm. spirits of the people that had been killed by the monster were like egging him on to finish it and yeah. take care of him. And then again, he he says that Victor said that my destiny is to find and destroy my creation because he doesn't want him to hurt anybody else. And then the second letter was written September 2nd, which is again about a week later. He says they're again surrounded by mountains of ice and may never make it home. And this was interesting. These letters were not mailed at the time, but they were all written and kind of tucked away to be mailed later. So that would be interesting. She gets all these letters at the same time Mm -hmm. or something. And then Walton is depressed by the weather, uh, not allowing them to continue on his mission north. But Frankenstein is like trying to cheer him up despite the situation that they may not be able to go on. And he is. He's really worried because he's worried there's going to be a mutiny, which is like every ship leader's most dreaded fear you know yeah you're stuck with no escape yeah okay so the third letter happens on september 5th and they're still surrounded by mountains of ice the men come to him and they say if a way is cleared we want you to promise that we're not going to try to go further north that we will just go south like no matter what he's kind of depressed by that because he's like but this is like what i've been working for all this time you know but he doesn't see any way around it and so this is when frankenstein gives this very stirring speech which i like i feel like this is like a call to arms it's like a go into the battle it's also like just like deal with any hard thing in your life with this speech it's really good he says what do you mean are you then so easily turned from your design do you not call this a glorious expedition And wherefore was it glorious? Not because the way was smooth and placid as a southern sea, but because it was full of dangers and terror. Because at every new incident, your fortitude was to be called forth and your courage exhibited. Because danger and death surrounded it, and these you were to brave and overcome. And now behold, the first imagination of danger, or if you will, the first mighty and terrific trial of your courage, you shrink away and are content to be handed down as men who would not strength enough to endure cold and peril and so poor souls they were chilly and returned to their warm firesides why that requires not this preparation you need not have come this far and dragged your captain to the shame of a defeat merely to prove yourself cowards oh be men or be more than men be steady to your purposes and firm as a rock this ice is not made of such stuff as your hearts may be it is mutable and cannot withstand you if you say that it shall not do not return to your families with a stigma of disgrace marked on your brows return as heroes who have fought and conquered and who know not what it is to turn their backs on the foe like mary shelley look at you (laughs) you're the speech writing stuff this is a great speech but it does no good It does no good. Yeah. At first, the men are like, yeah, you know, he's like, all right. But then just a few days later, September 7th, he's like, nope. He's like, I've told them that we will return if we're not destroyed. He's like, it requires more philosophy than I possess to bear this injustice with patience. He's like, it's really hard because this is what we've worked for. This is what we've come all this way for. We've suffered. We've done all these things. And and now if we can, we'll return instead of carrying on. So five days later, September 12th is the last letter. And he says, I'm returning to England. I have lost my hopes of utility and glory. He says, the ice cracked behind us. The wind was such that we're just, we're heading south. We're heading back. So 
they're heading south, not going to finish their venture. Frankenstein is on the verge of death. He leaves Walton with some final thoughts. Uh, he says, think not Walton that in the last moments of my existence, I feel that burning hatred and ardent desire of revenge I once expressed, but I feel myself justified in desiring the death of my adversary. He says, the task of his destruction was mine, but I have failed. When actuated by selfish and vicious motives, I asked you to undertake my unfinished work. And I renew this request now when I am only induced by reason and virtue. So he's like, I probably shouldn't have asked you to kill the monster, but I am going to ask you to kill the monster because it cannot carry on after I'm dead. Like, it's not good for anybody. And he also says to him, he's like, speak happiness and tranquility and avoid ambition, even if it be only the apparently innocent one of distinguishing yourself in science and discoveries. Yet why do I say this? I have myself been blasted in these hopes, yet another may succeed. So he's like, be happy with a mediocre life. Don't try things. It'll just backfire, which is such a sad way to end your life. You know, most people on their deathbed are saying, just go for it. Life is short, you know, just be all that you can be. Take risks, do all the things. And he's like, eh, don't try. It's going to backfire. You'll just be tortured. And it's going to be awful. But then he does kind of do a little bit of reflecting. He's like, well, others have not been blasted like I have. So maybe that's wrong to say. Maybe he my dies. experience has been unique. Yes. I think <laughs> he, he does kind of realize that. So he passes away. He does. It's very sad. And a little bit later, Walton goes in to check on him because he hears something in the room where he's actually in a coffin and he finds the monster. There he is hovering over the body of Frankenstein. And he's actually asking his pardon he says, oh, Frankenstein, generous and self-devoted being, what does it avail that I now ask thee to pardon me? I, who irretrievably destroyed thee by destroying all thou lovest. Alas, he is cold and he cannot answer me. And so Walton is like, oh, well, that's nice that now you're asking his pardon, yeah. but it's a little late for that, pal. You know, he says your repentance is now superfluous. You know, there's always two sides to a story and everything that Frankenstein told us about the monster is true, but the monster doesn't necessarily see it in the same way. Of course he doesn't. He's, I mean, he's crazy, but he's like, listen, I wanted love and, and sympathy. And when wrenched by misery to vice and hatred, it did not endure the violence of the change without torture such as you cannot even imagine. So he's like, look, I'm not like so different from anybody else. I wanted love. I wanted compassion. I saw the goodness of that and I wanted it. And it was denied me over and over again in such brutal and awful ways that it changed me and I became this horrible monster. Do you think that's how murderers feel? I think some of them do. I think some are actually psycho or sociopaths and so they don't feel that. I mean, some of them are created you know, that way because they have been treated so horribly. It's one of them that they are not going to feel anything one or the other, but I'm just, I'm just yeah, I can I picture think, somebody in prison being like, nobody cares. How did I get here? Yeah. 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 Totally. A lot are that way. It was like, he watched Frankenstein. He, he said he pitied him, but then he said he sought his own enjoyment and feelings and passions from the indulgent of which I I was forever barred. Then impotent envy and bitter indignation filled me with an insatiable thirst for vengeance. He's like, he was doing all the things that I wanted to do and I should have been able to do, but I couldn't, I just had to watch and suffer that way. 
I was the slave, not the master, of an impulse which I detested yet could not disobey. I had cast off all feeling. It's kind of interesting because he would tell Frankenstein that he was the master of him. And at the same time, for the monster, his hatred and his need for vengeance was the master of him. Walton says that at first he was he was actually kind of touched by this. He, he's like, okay, like I I kind of get that that your misery drove you to do awful things. But then he's like, oh, but then I remember that Frankenstein said that he's very persuasive, he's very eloquent. So maybe I can't believe anything that he's yeah, saying. He's like, he's like, don't believe anything he says. He sa- so he says, you throw a torch into a pile of buildings, and when they are consumed, you sit among the ru- ruins and lament the fall hypocritical fiend it is not pity that you feel you lament only because the victim of your malignity is withdrawn from your power he's like you don't have power over him anymore that's why you're sad we don't really know if that's true or not but the monster does say he's like when i think back on all the sins that i have committed i can't believe that i'm the same creature whose thoughts were once filled with sublime and transcendent visions of the beauty and majesty of goodness. So it is, it's kind of like that person who finds themselves in prison that one step after the next, after the next drew them and to these horrible actions, which at one point in their life, they never would have believed they were capable of. And yet here he is. And he's, he compares himself to the fallen angel to, to the devil. But he's like, but even that guy had friends and I don't, I'm all alone. At the end, he does say, he kind of again like revisits all the injustices that he feels. He's like, he's like, look, I helped Felix and his family. I helped the DeLacy family. And then they just like threw me out and wanted nothing to do with me. So why aren't they the bad guys? He's like, I saved this child from the river and this rustic, he just screamed at me and, and he he shot me. Why isn't he the bad guy? I'm the bad guy because I'm ugly, because I'm cast out. And all these horrible things that have happened to me have had made me do all these other horrible things. So he feels like he has suffered all these injustices, which he has. And that's true. But it didn't mean that he needed to turn around and destroy other people's lives, especially those who had absolutely nothing to do with the injustices that he suffered. I kind of think about that, like people that do horrible things usually have suffered injustices but they're still held accountable for what they did yes as they should be yeah you can't take that away like because you cannot take justice into your own hands it just right it doesn't work that way because we are incapable of meeting it out in an appropriate way so we have to let somebody else deal with it he does tell walton he's like look i'm done like i all I want to do is die. Like, I'm going to go as far north as I can. I'm going to build myself a pyre and I'm going to die. He just says, farewell, Frankenstein. If thou wert yet alive and yet cherished a desire of revenge against me, it would be better satiated in my life than in my destruction. Because he's like, my life was so awful and miserable. Death would be a good thing. And so actually, you know, his revenge would be fulfilled like the longer I live because I'm just absolutely miserable. But Frankenstein was also extremely miserable. And so you just have, these very very miserable characters it's it is it's very sad it's a very tragic book i think the only good thing that happens is we know that walton does get home and his sister reads his letters and at the very end uh the monster you know goes out the window and and takes off and so as far as we know he headed up north and he died so the monster needed to take revenge right 
he was kind of taking revenge on his creator. Did it in the end help him? No. I think so. No. No. Like he was still miserable. Well, and it only made him more miserable. Yeah. Because when we inflict misery, we become more miserable. Honestly. I just think it's, it's just funny that I think um, Walton, he got off easy because the monster's like, I'm going to go die. Yeah. <laughs> Walton's like, good, because I did not want to like spend the rest of my life trying to find and destroy you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> then have you turn on me. Yeah. I was so impressed with the language, with the the story, just all of it. I mean, 18 years old. I think he was 18. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. I just, I'm like, mm, they don't make them like they used to. No, not at 18. So good. Yeah. So. I'm just excited that I now know the story. Yes. I totally know the story of Frankenstein. And like, I kind of want to watch the, a movie, a Frankenstein movie, just to see. I told my husband, I'm like, it's nothing like the book. I'm pretty sure. But yeah, Ken and I were talking about the one made in 1994, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And I think they may have tried to make that one as close to the book as they could. I think I have to look at it, into it. So, one thing I want to mention is I have discovered, and I mean, other people are probably way more ahead of me, ahead of, I don't know, smarter than me. But the library is a great resource for movies that you can't yes. find on like digital streaming that you're already paying for because like, I'm not going to buy or rent a movie when I can check. I, I've just discovered that you can check them out at the library. And so, Oh yes. Like I just checked out Austin land and I was mm-hmm. watching it today and David was like, he came in and he was cracking up and I was like, okay, we're watching this together later. <laughs> Very funny. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so just at the library, they often have, you know, lots of DVDs, but then their digital, the digital yes. library consortium has so much and hoopla has a lot too so yeah yeah there's if lots you have of hoopla really you can get some videos it's not just audiobooks and yes you no know, yeah they've books. got quite a quite a lot so interesting yeah. yeah so check it out at the library so i always check the roku player and then if it doesn't have it i usually look at the library like one interesting thing is like the cosby show you can't get mm-hmm. that anywhere now but you can yeah. check it out at the library no <laughs> <laughs> the library i know it's like they don't care about no what the creators of things have done in their lives yeah it's like keep it all here because all the information is we need all the information the whole i guess it's like banned books week or whatever which Mm -hmm. i totally don't understand why people are banning books or well and also i feel like it's kind of trumped up i'm like they're not actually banned like what are you even talking about i don't understand it oh but i'm like what's the difference between yeah. that and saying you can't watch this anymore because the person that was acted in it did something bad. Yeah. What yeah. is the difference? Like there is no difference. We're taking it away. I don't know. We're taking it away from yeah. I don't know. Yeah. That boggles my mind. I don't understand. I mean, it's probably that I don't really understand, but I don't. <laughs> well, and and I mean, as far as like the banned books, yes. I mean, a lot of times they they'll be like, Oh, well, this was in this one obscure school, they said the kids couldn't read this book for this reason. And it was like 50 years ago. Okay. It's not banned anymore. But but even so, I do appreciate that they have that because it makes you think about it. And it sort yeah. of engages you a little more. So yeah. I, I so, think there's still value to that. I mean, my list, I have five books that are similar to Frankenstein. Good. Yes. I, you know, as I was reading, I was like, you know, this does make me think of several books. And so we may have some of the same. I'm not sure. We so probably wanna... do. <laughs> okay. I want to hear your list. 
Okay, obviously Dracula by Bram Stoker, yes. mm-hmm. which I've read and I did not like it as much as I liked this one. It was a little, I think it was a little creepier. I think it was a little bit more sexual. Hmm. Not as in sexual, but like, I don't know, just the descriptions of like, I think at one point there's some creatures outside, like some women that are like bats or something. I don't know. Oh. Crazy. Okay. But like. The way they talk about them. It's just different. I felt like this book, not like that at all. There was nothing in it that was yeah. other than no. stuff at the end. No. So was that on your list? It was not. Okay, no. good. Why don't you go with the next one? Okay, so the first one that I have is actually just Wuthering Heights because it, it is just like, first of all, I love it. It is always stormy because they're in the north of England and it's, it's like the wind is always blowing and everything's always dark and... It just seems like everybody's always miserable and grumpy and they kind of are. And so is that considered gothic? I believe so. So, but it was written a little bit later. And is that gosh, is it Emily Bronte? A Bronte. Yes, it's Emily Bronte. Published in 1847. The story of Kathy and Heathcliff and like their very passionate love. And then she marries somebody else. And then he wants to take his revenge. And he is sort of like this deformed monster a little bit, even though Anyway, he's sort of like um, gypsy and so he's dark and, and nobody approves of him. And so he's he's always out to get his revenge. And then David mentioned It by Stephen King, which oh. the, we talked about how I don't think I could read Stephen King. I think <laughs> I, don't I, know I could either. I yeah. think it's called 112360 something. I don't know. That book is supposed to be less like horror. So maybe someday mm-hmm. I'll read that. But David said he's read It, so. All right. What do you got? Okay. So the next one it made me think of was actually Jamaica Inn, which is also by Daphne du which we've talked about Rebecca. And I feel like it's maybe a little less well known. And to be completely honest, I have not read it, but I watched the movie years ago, which again, I checked out from the library. So it's the story of Mary Yellen, a woman who moves to stay at Jamaica Inn with her aunt Patience and Uncle Joss after the death of her mother. It takes place in Cornwall in England. It's very stormy all the time. And the Cornwall, of course, is on the coast of England. So Mary quickly finds out that the inn is an unsavory place, mistrusted by the locals, and that her uncle is closely linked with a group of suspicious men who appear to be smugglers. They do something where they, like, trick ships into coming to their beach so they'll act like they're a lighthouse type of thing so they'll sort of like lull these ships into the beach acting like they're a lighthouse and so the ships run aground and the sailors like desperately are trying to get on shore they go and like murder the sailors and then they take all the goods from their ships and sell them and so yeah, it's pretty dark, but I watched it just because it was Jane Seymour who was in it, and I love her as an actress. And anyway, it was actually. Did you watch good. the old movie? Yes. Um, it's an Alfred Hitchcock movie. I don't think adaptations. Okay, 1930. Yeah, she wouldn't have been in that one. Oh, it's the 1983 ITV miniseries that I saw with Jane Seymour. You remember yeah. so- the movie Somewhere in Time? Jane Seymour. Oh, yeah. Oh. That's so funny. I just saw a picture of that because it was Christopher Reeves yes. and Jane Seymour, right? Yeah. No, I think it came up on my Facebook feed and I was like, oh, that movie it was such a good movie. <laughs> it was. 
It really was. That's so funny. I know. I so, just saw it the other day and I was like, oh my gosh, Jane Seymour. And we, as teenagers, I used to watch that with my friends a lot. <laughs> I don't think I've actually seen the entire movie, but I remember what I did see of it. I loved it. So yeah, I'll have to watch the whole I'll thing. have to have Sydney watch it. She'll she would love it. <laughs> she would probably love it. What's your next one? Well, I had Rebecca, but we'll buy Daphne DeMarie, which we're going to read next year. So We'll yes. just move on because that'll be that'll be so good. But I thought of the Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. Oh, yes, I haven't read it, but oh. I have watched the miniseries on Netflix. Okay, I've heard that it it doesn't isn't super true to the book, but it's still Not. like dark and creepy. Okay. So that would be a one week, maybe another October we could do. I think that would be a fun one. Yeah. There's another book that is creepy. <laughs> I think it's called We Capture the Castle. I think it might be by her. Let me look and see. We Captured the Castle. I Capture the Castle. I don't know. I Capture the Castle by Dodie Smith. Thought of that one too. Like that one's kind of creepy. That's also a movie on Netflix that you can watch. Yeah. Anyways, I thought that would be a fun one too. It's creepy. (laughs) I'm just thinking of creepy movies. Like what books are creepy and classics? My next one is a short story by Edgar Allan Poe called The Telltale Heart. I'm sure a lot of people have read it, but it's one where the main character, it and it very much reminds me of this because it's the main character. We don't even know what his name is, but he commits a murder. If I'm remembering correctly, he like buries the body under the floor, but then he it's like he can hear the beating of the heart of the body still. And he's very sure that everyone else around him can hear it too. And so everything's pointing to his guilt and he's just tortured by it until, yeah, at the, I think at the end he dies or kills himself, whatever. Edgar Allan Poe is a very dark Gothic writer too. It's a short story. It wouldn't take very long to read, but. Did you read that for fun or for school or? Um, I read it in school. Well, I read it a couple of times in school. So I think I did it in high school and then in college. I did not. It's not what you really read for fun. It's super creepy. It makes you like it is so well written that it makes you think you're going a little bit crazy. <laughs> you like start sweating. You can feel all of his feelings you're like, oh, my gosh. So that's the last one I thought of. And I know nothing about this story either. But Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Oh, yes. By Robert Louis Stevenson. And yeah. I don't know anything about the story. So I don't even know. I just thought. I think that you're right. It's another one that I have not read, but it's funny because Ken loves the play. He's seen the play, I think a few different times. He loves the music by all accounts. It probably would fit into the sort of the Gothic. Classic Gothic. Dark classic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You guys are in a good place for going to see plays for sure. Yes. Yes. Lucky. In fact, the Shakespeare um, plays just closed and last night was the last night for this one that's just hilarious. It's called The Play That Goes Wrong. So funny. It's not a Shakespeare, but they, they always do several Shakespeare and then a couple of others. And so we finally convinced Tate to go. We've been trying to get him to go. We're like, no, like it is so good. It's so funny. Your friends would love it. Like take a date. You know, he's like, no, no. Finally convinced him to go last night because we get all these comp tickets because we usher. So he finally goes and he comes home. He's like, why didn't anybody tell me it was so good? would have gone a long time ago <laughs> we're like dude really really we've been telling you <laughs> we've been trying to tell you why are you such a classic teenager don't listen 
<laughs> Anyways, but he loved it. So my last book is Crime and Punishment by Fyodor Dostoevsky. I read this one years ago. So it follows the mental anguish and moral dilemmas of Raskolnikov, an impoverished ex-student in St. Petersburg who plans to kill an unscrupulous pawnbroker, an old woman who stores money and valuable objects in her flat. He theorizes that with the money, he could liberate himself from poverty and go on to perform great deeds and seeks to convince himself that certain crimes are justifiable if they are committed in order to remove obstacles to the higher goals of extraordinary men. Super, super interesting. It was also very dark, very psychological, very, yeah. Charlie just read it. Okay. Yeah. He's like, you guys need to read some of his stuff, but it's really long. I'm like, I know. But yeah, he liked he liked it. He's reading the Brothers of Karimazov. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm just I'm like really enjoying the human that he's turning into. Yeah. He's reading books. <laughs> like really, really good books. Yeah. So that's awesome. I'm so happy. I mean, not that I the other kids need to read books for me to be like them, but I'm just happy. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Just like when you see them doing things that you know are so good for them. And yeah, that's very satisfying. So cool. Um, okay. So what are you reading for fun? I talked last week about The Hour of the Witch by Chris Bojalian. Did you ever go just like listen to a sample at no, all? No, I should have. Dang it. I was going you to should. and I didn't. So I did get through it and I got to where I was like, all right, the narrator's fine. Like not still not great, but the book was really good. I I did. I, I liked it a lot. I really appreciate it. But since I did talk about that last week, I'm going to talk about the book that I just finished reading with my kids this week. It's called The Vikings. And it's the story of Leif Erikson and his father, Eric the Red, and how they like get kicked out of Iceland. They go settle Greenland. And then Leif wants to go off and do his own adventures. He goes to Norway. He gets in favor with the King Olaf. And then he goes and he discovers this part of America that he calls Vineland. And then um, others go and, and try to survive in parts of it. And they're sort of driven off by the natives. It's really interesting. And it's all based on sagas of the Vikings that they had like handed down, whether orally or in writing, I think probably in writing because they did write. And so it's all based on, on those sagas. So how accurate is it? I, I don't know, but it is all completely based on their sagas. So, I mean, I, I think that there is a lot of truth to it. And we do, I mean, they found a lot of Viking artifacts in certain parts of, of North America. So it's called the Vikings yeah, was, or the Viking. It's called The Vikings by Elizabeth Janeway. It's published by Beautiful Feet Books, which is a curriculum company we go through for our homeschool. Um, but like, I mean, anybody could order it. It was very good. Yes. And my kids really enjoyed it. It was well-written. This week, I I like, I don't know. I started my book late this week, in the week. And so I was listening to a book podcast and they were talking about, I don't know, they just mentioned this book. And so I happened to look it up and I thought it's October. I'll, it sounds interesting. And it was only five hours. And so I was like, woohoo, I started the book late. So we're good. I can read the five hour book in three hours. Yeah. But it's called The City of Ghosts. It's called City of Ghosts by Victoria Mm -hmm. Schwab, which I think she is V.E. Schwab, I believe. Maybe she writes as like different. This might be like uh, YA. I'm, it kind of felt like YA. So maybe it is, but. It's kind of, it's just kind of entertaining. It says it's perfect for fans of Stranger Things and Miss 
Miss oh. Peregrine's home for peculiar children. So okay. So this girl is drowned, but then a ghost saves her. So she's mm. not really drowned, but now she's different. She's like changed. And so she sees other ghosts. And then the ghost that saved her, his name's Jacob, and he like follows her around everywhere she goes. So he's like her best friend, but you know, people are like, Who are you talking to? <laughs> she's like my friend Jacob. No, her mom kind of knows about him, but she doesn't tell other people. Okay. So the veil, she, they call it the veil between the living and the dead is very thin now for her. She has like this blue light that shines in her chest. So she's somehow she's changed. So things are weird, but her parents like write books about ghosts. And so they get hired to do a TV show about the world's most haunted places. And so the family goes to Edinburgh, Scotland, which is interesting because that came up in Frankenstein Mm -hmm. and there's graveyards and castles and secret passageways and phantoms. And so she there meets the ghost and her and their cat. I don't know why they take their cat, but they go to, to Scotland and she meets another girl who has the same kind of, gift and then she learns a lot from this girl like Mm -hmm. what the girl calls herself a ghost hunter and she's like thinks of herself as somebody who helps people their stock go you know okay anyways it says um the city of ghosts is more dangerous than ever imagined it sounds like there's like there's a lot that happens in five hours i know one book yeah it's a series Oh, okay. It's like, it's just entertaining. I don't know. Yeah. I'm just cool. Sometimes I just need something entertaining. Yeah, totally. (laughs) And short. Agreed. So I just thought, well, I'll share that this week since it's October because if anybody wants to pick it up, you could easily read it in an afternoon, a couple days. A couple days, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Next week, we're going to have an episode about our first year. It's going to be like our first anniversary episode. So that'll be fun. It'll just be like, I don't know. Reminiscing wanna, and talking yeah. about what we've learned. Want to hear what our favorite classics were? What our least favorite classics were? Yes. What our families think of what we're doing? I know. Okay. I'm super excited. So, yeah. Do they think we're crazy? Okay. Yeah, that'll be fun. And then the next week, we're going to start All of a Kind Family by Sydney Taylor, which is such a sweet book. So yes, I'm super excited about that. I was so surprised I didn't have it in my little library. So, but I ordered it and now I do. And I'm really happy about that. So I checked it out from the library. Well, I ordered one because I write in them, but I also checked it out from the library, hoping that it was going to be the the version that I've read when I was a kid. Because mm. I we go to the same library and it's not. Oh, that book has probably long since yeah. been <laughs> tossed. Yeah. <laughs> Darn it. I forget I about how long it's been. I know. It always makes me go, oh, 20 years is a long time. And the book was old 20. then. Yeah. So yeah, I'm sure it's long gone. But anyways, that'll be fun. We're so happy you joined us for this episode. We hope you will join us next week as we talk about and reminisce over our one year of this podcast. If you have suggestions for books we should read and discuss, please email us at thebestbookspodcast at gmail.com. We would love it if you would leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts and share a podcast with your friends. We want to inspire and encourage as many people as we can to read out of the best books. As Thoreau says, read the best books first, or you may not have a chance to read them at all. See you next week. 